Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son. Thanks for uh, sending him. And today we recognize the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus who came as a baby. We can scarcely comprehend it. But we gather as your people to remember him, to thank you for what you have done for us. And so as we open your word and your scriptures, may you be glorified through Jesus Christ. May our hearts... May our hearts want to worship you rightly in this season, in this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Would you take a seat? Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. My name's Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's just so good that we can gather. I love that we get together on Christmas Day, no matter the day of the week. Because it's significant, right? It's, it's the time that we remember God himself came to earth as one of us. And uh, Christmas is just a sweet season for most. It's not for everyone, you know, it can be hard for some as uh, different memories and dynamics play out in your families, but for most it is a joyous season. And uh, we sing uh, these special songs that are called Christmas carols that we only get to sing at sort of a month during the year, and those are just... I just love singing them. Uh, we, we give gifts, right, to one another, and they are, you know, that, that's just fun to give gifts to, to each other and to receive gifts. Um, and we test out that scripture that it's, you know, it's better to give than to receive, and we, we test that one out to see if it's true. Um, and then we have all these other kind of songs that come up during Christmas time that have nothing to do with necessarily the Christmas story or origin or anything to do with Jesus, but they're just Christmas songs. And so uh, you, you've probably heard the day, the 12 days of Christmas, right? Everyone who's heard that one? Yeah, 12 days of Christmas? Right. I've got a poem for you today called The 12 Days After Christmas. So let me read that to you this morning. The first day after Christmas, my true love and I had a fight. And so I chopped the pear tree down and burned it just for spite. Then with a single cartridge, I shot that blasted partridge that my true love, my true love, my true love gave to me. The second day after Christmas, I pulled on the old rubber gloves and very gently wrung the necks of both the turtle doves. The third day after Christmas, my mother got the croup and very, uh, sorry, and I had to use the three French hens to make some chicken soup. The four calling birds were a big mistake because their language was obscene. The five gold rings were completely fake. They turned my fingers green. The sixth day after Christmas, the six laying geese wouldn't lay. So I gave the whole gaggle to the RSPCA. The seventh day, what a mess I found. All the seven of the swimming swans had drowned. On the eighth day after Christmas, before they were aware, I loaded up the eight maids are milking, the nine pipers piping, ten ladies dancing, eleven lords are leaping, twelve drummers drumming, and put them on a bus with a one-way fare. And then I wrote to my true love saying, we are through, we are done. Don't send me any more gifts, even just for fun. There's a mess of blood and feathers, and from the shotgun, a ringing in my ear. And all I can think of, there is no way I'm celebrating Christmas next year. This poem highlights uh, for me a bit of the tension of Christmas. You see, t- Christmas is it's joyous, it's, it's celebratory, 
Um, and most of the time in our world, Christmas revolves around giving gifts, uh, Santa Claus. It involves time off from work, which we all love. Um, it, it involves, you know, eating a lot of food with one another, probably eating too much. And then the new year rolls around and we say, right, diet, here we go. We're going to lose all that weight we just put on. And those things are good, right? We enjoy doing those things. Family is a blessing. Time off is a blessing. Being able to rest and relax is a blessing and a good thing. But I fear that as we go down that path further and further as a society, we get further and further away from the origins of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas, and what Christmas was meant to point to from the very start of its celebration. We read the story of Jesus this morning, and that is really what Christmas is all about. And so I want to take uh, about 15 minutes to look at five aspects of that story that are important for us to understand about Jesus' coming and what that means for us. So if you want to really want to know what Jesus' birth is really all about, here's five things about the passage that Tom read to us earlier. The first aspect is that Jesus' birth was real. It was real. It was set in reality. So many of the details that we read in our passage actually happened. It was a real time and place. The passage began by talking about the times of Caesar Augustus when he was ruling as Roman Empire, as his uh, uh, Roman Emperor. He, uh, Caesar lived between 27 BC and 14 AD, and he decreed that a census should take place where everyone would go to their hometown, and this census was for the purposes of taxes, right? So everybody in the Roman world would go back to where they originated from and uh, register so that they could be taxed. And uh, this was not a, a positive thing for those who were Israelites, right? They were seen to go back. This wasn't like the census or the administration that took place during the time of Numbers, um, or under David in the Old Testament, where it's about the administration of the country. This was about giving money to their overlords, right? And Rome wanted to tax everybody to continue on their building program that they had started and, of course, expand their kingdom even further. And so this was one of the lowest points for a Jew as they would return to their homeland and put their name down to give tax to the Roman governor, uh, Caesar Augustus. Let me tell you a little bit about Caesar Augustus. He was called Divi Filius, right? Which means son of God. Isn't that interesting? And uh, he was known for being able to go into a place that had his, uh, fiercely um, kind of warrior-like barbarians who were not sophisticated, who were not able to really um, even... What's, what's the word? They would not look good at a dinner party. Let's just put it that way. They, uh, they sometimes didn't even wear clothes. They were, they were given the name barbarians for a reason. And Caesar would come in and he would conquer them and he would be able to actually um, get them to a point where they would actually resemble what was looking like the Roman Empire, right? And they would actually become loyal to Caesar. And so he was kind of known to be able to do this. And so for that reason, he was credited with bringing a bit of peace to the Roman Empire during his reign. And so there was this uh, thing called the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome that had gone out 
And some of that is credited, obviously, to Caesar because he would go into these places and take these kind of wild barbarians and make them decent Roman citizens in some way. And uh, everywhere that you went across the Roman Empire, you would see statues of Caesar Augustus. And that was a reminder to everybody of who was in charge, who was reigning and who was ruling. And it was Caesar, right? And he was seen everywhere. And in some sense, it was, uh, it was his way of reminding people that you come under my rule. There was this notion that he was, uh, he, he was a, a god and he was what was to be uh, acclaimed as earthly greatness during this time that Jesus is born. Caesar was real. These details aren't made up. They actually happened. And he had an administrator called Quirinius. And he was the governor of Syria, it says. And he was the one that was going to oversee this census that was taking place. Next, we also have places that are mentioned in the story that are real. Uh, Joseph and Mary start up in Nazareth, Nazareth and Galilee, that's north, and they're going to work their way down to Bethlehem, which is just below Jerusalem, right? These are real places that still exist today, and you can go and visit them. In fact, I've been to Bethlehem, and it's a hole. There is nothing there, right? It's, it's just a small little town, and it's grown a lot since this time, right? And it's a, it's a nowhere kind of place. It's like if you came to Australia as a tourist, and you went, and you just like, I've got to go check out Oki, you know, like Oki's where it's at. And uh, I've got anyone from Oki here? Blessings upon you. And, um, <clears throat> you know, like it's just nowhere. It's, it, it's not somewhere you would normally go and see. It's not a significant town at all. And yet they do exist. And the story tells us these are real events that happened and you can line them up with reality. And it's important to recognize that this is not a mythological hero like Hercules who gets kind of thrown down by the, by the gods and he wrestles two snakes to continue on his life. This is, this is not a mythological character. This is real, set in reality. Jesus really existed in history. Secondly, Jesus' birth was prophetical. It was real. It was prophetical. What seems to be ordinary historical events are anything but as the birth of Jesus fulfills prophecies that were made hundreds of years earlier. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born of the line of David, the king of Israel. And the text tells us in Luke, verse 4, that Joseph, his father, is of the line of Luke, and that is why, uh, of, of David, and that is why he's returning to Bethlehem. And so we see that this is prophetical, it fulfills that. As he heads to Bethlehem, he's also fulfilling Micah 5 which tells us where the Messiah is going to born. This, be born. This, again, was written hundreds of years earlier before Jesus even shows up. Micah 5, 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Hundreds of years earlier, this is written, right, before Jesus shows up. And yet, as you see, through the story, these things are being fulfilled. How do you explain that? How do you explain that Jesus fulfilled all these things that happened, uh, that were prophesied a hundred, hundreds of years earlier, some of them thousands? Thirdly, the birth of Jesus was common. It was real, it was prophetical, it was common. And what I mean by this is that it was not ostentatious, it was not opulent, it ain't fancy, right? 
the, the God of the world enters in the most humble of ways. He's born to two poor parents. We know that from the next story. Come next Sunday, you'll hear about that story. He's born in Bethlehem, which I've explained is just a, no, a nothing town. Um, he doesn't have a space reserved for his birth, waiting for him. Um, he, he, he shares his birthplace with where the animals are housed. It's a very humble entrance. And when he's born, he's put into a manger. And that was the feeding trough for the animals, right? It was this big concrete um, basin, right? And it would have these two big metal pieces on the other end and they would tie the animals to it and they would feed out of this, this big concrete cold trough. And they placed the God of the universe in human form into that feeding trough. It, it is a phenomenal um, humble Jesus that enters into our world. And he keeps doing that as he goes along and grows and grows. It's, it's like, I, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I think King Charles is coming next year or planning to come and that'll be great. Yeah, it would be an amazing time. We're all looking forward to that. Um, but it would be like King Charles coming next year and he decides, you know what, I'm going to fly economy on my way over here, I'm going to sit next to the mum who has the crying baby with colic, right? And uh, my his entertainment screen's broken, the Wi-Fi's down, the food is cold, and he's he gets delayed on the tarmac, and then when he finally lands, he spends hours in immigration and passport control, right? And they lose his bags on the plane, and then he, he finally takes his Uber to the Backpackers Hotel where he's going to share with five other stinky guys, and spend his time in Australia that way. Like, that's what it would kind of look like uh, for, for King Charles to enter the way that Christ enters into the world. Like, it just doesn't happen, right? We, we reserve the best of the best for the people who are, are seen to be the most worthy and holy and righteous and special, right? And yet you see Jesus coming into the world, and he doesn't do any of that. It was a very common way that Jesus entered in. And yet, in another way, while it was common, it was, it was anything but that in its reality. And this is where we see our fourth aspect of Jesus' birth. It was glorious. It was glorious. It was glorious. And the shepherds are our testament to that. Just imagine you're out and you're, you're taking care of your flock at night and it's, it's really dark because you're out in the fields and you can see all the stars and there's not really any sound apart from the odd sheep making a bar and you know, it, it, you're settling in for the night because you know, you're, you've had a long day following these sheep around. It's been hot. And all of a sudden, you're lying there and an angel of the Lord shows up. I mean, we can barely even comprehend what that would be like, right? And I'm sure the shepherds are probably thinking, what were we smoking earlier that day? You know, was it, was it our normal? No, it wasn't. Uh, because that just didn't normally happen, right? And this angel shows up, and it says in the text that uh, 
the, the glory of God was there. The glory of God was with the angel. And this word um, is used of God's presence in the Old Testament. This is called the Shekinah glory, where God's physical presence would manifest itself in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that no one was allowed to enter except for the, whole, uh, the, the chief priest, the high priest, once a year. And it was this remarkable idea that it, it would be with God's people. And in Ezekiel, that presence of God actually leaves the temple as the, as the people of Israel had been so disobedient and rebellious. That you see the Shekinah presence of God slowly departing from the temple and leaving the people. And it hadn't been seen since. And yet here we have on this pretty remote field with some shepherds, God's presence and an angel showing up. It's remarkable. It's glorious. And any time that the Lord shows up in His presence, or an angel of the Lord, there is a, a human response that goes with it every time, right? And you probably see this every, or, or know this every time, right? How do the people respond? Fear. Because there is a holy God that when you see Him, when you stand in front of Him, when you come into contact with Him, it, it invokes fear because we are not worthy. And then the same response comes back every time from an angel of the Lord or from God himself. And what does he say? Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Why should we not fear? Because today is not uh, the judgment day. This is the good news of the gospel that the Savior has come. That's why the shepherds shouldn't fear. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Three, uh, three words there that describe Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. The Savior, that's going to be His mission. That He's going to come and save uh, His people from His sins by giving Himself as a substitute for them. Second, He is the Christ. That is His title. And it refers to the one who would conquer the enemies of God. Anyone who would be opposed to his goodness and his life and his rule and his reign. The Christ, the Messiah, will put an end to those who stand opposed. And thirdly, he is the Lord. This is his nature. It refers to him being... God of very God, second member of the Trinity, same essence as the Father. Through Him, all things were made. God of God, light of light. This is the infant who is born and placed in the manger. He is the Savior, He is the Christ, He is the Lord. And the shepherds are told this along with a sign that they will find a baby who's wrapped in cloth and placed in a manger. And then all of a sudden, as they're there, and there's one angel, and there's the presence of God, a host of angels show up. And it's revealed to them that it's not just one, there's a host, a myriad of angels there. And what are they doing? They're praising God for what is going on. 
They're bringing glory to Him. Look at what they're saying in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And the NIV says, And on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. The, the word there on those whom his favor is, on those, it's really actually the word for man. It's, it's the word for humanity, anthropos. So really what it's saying is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men. And these two lines are poetical, right? And there's three words in each line that go together with each other. In, in the first line, you have this idea of glory. In the second line, you have this idea of peace, and they go together. In, this, in the first line, you have this idea of, you, you have the person of, of God, and you have the, the people of men, and they go together. And then you have the place of heaven, and you have the place of earth, and they go together, right? And so what the angels are saying is this, glory is ascribed to God who is in heaven, and peace is ascribed to men who are on earth. How is that possible, that God is glorified in heaven at the same time that peace can come to men on earth simultaneously? And what you have is there is an understanding that this child who is born is going to do both those things. He's going to bring glory to God in heaven. He's going to bring praise to Him. And he's going to bring peace to men. It is Jesus Christ who stands in the middle of those two things that makes it possible. This infant. Jesus' birth was real. It was prophetical. It was common. It was glorious. And lastly, it was gracious. It was gracious. See, that peace made between God and man so that you might stand before Him and not be fearful, but be considered righteous was made possible because Jesus stands in that gap as our representative and He gives us His righteousness. And it's it's available to anyone, no matter your status or significance. You see, it is significant that the the news of Jesus' birth, His entrance into the world, was first announced when it happened to a group of shepherds. Now, we don't really have shepherds here, but if you look into what shepherds were kind of considered as back then, it was considered a very lowly job. You were outside all day and night. You were with animals all day and night, so you stunk, right? Right? You were away from other people. Your, your company was animals. Uh, you were considered unclean to be with animals like that. And so you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't make those sacrifices unless you went through a, uh, a cleansing sort of period. And it was the kind of job that you did if you weren't really much at all. Right, And so that's why you see in uh, the Old Testament that you've got David who is the youngest and the kind of considered the, sort of the pipsqueak of the family doing all the jobs that nobody else wants to do, all the real jobs like the brothers who go to war. What's he doing? He's out in the fields looking after the sheep. You know, it's like I go to my nieces and nephews places and it's like, who wants to feed the chooks? Get the littlest to do it. Like take all the scraps down there and put it in the, in the pen. Because... It's, a, it's not a job that people aspire to, right? And this is what shepherding was like. 
and they're nobodies. And yet the angels go to shepherds first. So what might we conclude the, the fact that they did that? What does that mean? Well, what if the angels went first to the intellectuals of Athens at the time? What if they decided they would go to them first? Or they, they decided they would go to the, uh, the, the, the strong warrior gladiators of Rome that fought? We might conclude that Jesus came for the, for the wise and the strong. But instead... He starts with the unclean, the isolated, the forgotten about shepherds, indicating that there was no one who can't come to know the king. It is a gracious offer to those who have no merit, who know they're not going to make it by their status, their occupation, their popularity, or, or any of that. And no matter what you've done, Jesus will go as low as you have gone. He will meet you there. Jesus' birth was real, prophetic, common, glorious, and gracious. I started talking about uh, Augustus when we started and there's this inscription in a place called Preen P-R-I-E-N-E that we have found we've uncovered it and it's, it's, it's this inscription about Caesar Augustus that was there at the time and this is what it says he brings war to an end he orders peace by manifesting himself he surpasses the hopes of all who are looking for good news that word at the end there, those who are looking for good news, that, that word is the word for gospel that we use. And as time went on, that word actually became less and less associated with the Caesar who ruled as a tyrant, and it became associated with this baby, Jesus And whether Caesar Augustus realized it or not, the real good news actually came through not somebody who ruled through strength and might and power in a way that was oppressive. It came through one who humbled himself so low that he might be able to carry the lowest and the smallest and lift them up. And I just wonder, and I don't know, I, don't, I haven't read of any of uh, anything that Caesar Augustus came to know or believe, but I do wonder if the man who thought he was a god came to know the God who became a man. And I wonder if the man who 
claim to bring short-term peace to Rome had placed his trust in the Prince of Peace for eternity. And I wonder if the man who called himself a God placed his faith in the God who became a man. Because at the end of his life, no matter his achievements, however impactful that they might be, they could never stand in the gap between a sinner and a holy God. You see, Caesar, just like us, needed someone to take our place. Caesar lived to a relatively old age for the time. In fact, 75 years till he died. And you know how he died? (laughs) Natural causes. You see, the man who paraded as a god died like men die. His body slowly but surely perished and he no longer lived. And all of us must face that reality one day. But all of us have somebody who can take us through to the other side. Who came and was born as an infant and grew into a man and did a ministry among us. Who took our spot on the cross but didn't stay dead. And he rose three days later. And he is our peace. He is our peace. It is Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Aren't you glad he's come?